0: As many of you know, Elise and I have a cat. Now some of you have even had the good fortune of meeting this cat on our Wednesday night prayer services on Zoom, where inevitably the one that's been ignoring me all day long, sleeping far away, the second she hears me speaking to you on that computer screen, runs up and jumps up on my lap and rubs around and and finally tries to get my attention away from you and from praying. And of course, most of the time, this actually works. But this thing, and others like it, remind me of how strange it is that human beings have any kind of relationship to animals. Sometimes I look down at my lap, or I might turn over in the middle of the night, and there is a cat, a wild animal. And sometimes... I wonder why we let this little animal live inside of our homes. And on top of that, we feed her and water her. We buy her treats and toys. We clean up after her and we take her to a doctor and pay for her medicine, which is more expensive than our human medicine. This little animal that's designed to be outside and to be by itself, to run around in the night, to catch rodents and birds, to climb up trees, to sneak around in the woods. This little thing is now sitting on the love seat and watching reruns of The Office with Elise and I. Isn't that a weird thing to think about? And yet all of us do it. We take pictures and videos of our pets and share them with our family and friends who in turn take pictures and videos of their pets and share them with us. And we all love it. There's one good thing about the internet, it's that it's been a good delivery system for us to send videos and pictures of domesticated house pets or exotic animals for us to all ooh and ah at. It absolutely delights us. Now, I don't know about you, but when sometimes I encounter something that seems absolutely ordinary and normal to us, and Suddenly, I'm I'm, uh, illumined with just how strange it is that here we are, human beings, living with this animal that we care for so deeply. Maybe irrationally, we care for this little animal so much. And I wonder why that is. And I think the answer is actually rather simple. I think God designed us human beings, the pinnacle of His creation, Male and female, made in His image, reflecting His glory to the universe. He made us to care and steward all lower species. We see that in the beginning of the Scriptures. It's written into our very code that we love God's world, from the land to the plants and, of course, even to the animals. And I think we're like Adam to this day. We are constantly discovering and seeing and naming and cataloging all the species that we can find and sometimes i think we're like noah we're rescuing we're treating and we're building livable habitats for these animals and i think part of what we find it means to be a human being is that we care about animals the proverbs tells us that a righteous person cares for his animals health and the prophets tell us that a telltale sign of God's pleasure or displeasure with His people is whether or not these human beings have animals around them. When God is happy with Israel, we read in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah that there's animals around them. But when God is unhappy with unjust human beings, their animals go extinct. I think this is why C.S. Lewis believed that in some way we are to kind of play a priest-like role to animals. Not that we preach to them, maybe we do. Uh, not that we have some sort of strange relationship with them, but, but we are to be uh, a kind of creature that reveals the love and wisdom and grace of God by having compassionate care on these lower beings. But today's passage... I think why I've gone on this long tirade about animals. Today's passage takes that image of godly care for animals and inverts it. It reveals to us how ungodliness, on the other hand, actually dehumanizes and degrades human beings, making them even lower than the animals, turning them into wild beasts. The point that Peter draws out here is that sin can warp us so terribly as human beings that even a pack mule, will see, can speak more truth than a preacher. And so Peter continues his tirade against these false teachers by comparing their proclivity for power to their devolving into bloodthirsty and mindless beasts. And so last week, Peter took us through Genesis to show us three historical examples of where the path of greed and lust, that's what these false teachers are all about, where that path leads to utter and complete desolation and destruction. Whether talking about fallen angels or evil empires or corrupt societies, he showed us that God's justice will win out in the end. He will not let his creatures, whether spiritual beings or physical beings, get away with their wickedness forever. But Peter also pointed out to us two remarkable people. He pointed out Noah and Lot. They're remarkable not because there's anything special in them, but they're remarkable because unlike the world around them, they responded to God in faith and obedience. But these two men who trusted and followed God although they were called righteous in the Scriptures, were not very righteous men in their behavior. And yet God saved them. Why? Well, it's not again because of their righteousness that He saved them. It's because that while they were yet sinners, Christ died even for unrighteous people like them. And so when we look at Noah and Lot, what we can see is a mirror, a spiritual mirror of ourselves. Not very righteous people, but by the grace and mercy of God, trusting and obeying in Him. And so ultimately this led us to the place where we see God's justice against evil and His mercy towards sinners ultimately meet and congress, And that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the source of all of our good news. But here's some bad news that Peter wants us to get back to. There will always be people who claim, by the way, to be Christians. That claim Jesus and His Gospel. And yet these false teachers will try to lead us astray with division and deceit and with uh, their various forms of depravity. They will try to distract us. And so Peter, not satisfied with the beat down he's already put on these people, he is going to double down on what he really thinks of them And our passage this morning. So let's look, starting with the second part of verse 10 this morning. 10b. Peter starts strong in his total denouncement of these false teachers. He starts by saying, Bold, arrogant people! They are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. Peter is so taken aback by the sheer brazenness of their pride, of their blinding arrogance. They're so bold, they're so arrogant, in fact, that not only do they intentionally mislead human beings, whoever it is, pagan or Christian alike, not only do they intentionally mislead them, but they even slander the glorious ones. That's a weird phrase, a weird word. Who are these glorious ones? Well, many scholars believe that this might refer to some uh, Christian preachers and pastors and, and people that are serving faithfully in the church, and there may be an element of that to it, but I agree uh, that I think there's more to this description. I think when he's describing the glorious ones, what he's doing is describing the angels, underlining that these false teachers are so crazed in their sin that they're in danger of slandering even the angels and he points that out two more times in the next two verses by saying they're slandering they're slandering they're slandering and they're slandering even angels strangely now this is not only a weird phrase but people uh, don't always know what to make of it i mentioned when we were in first peter that martin luther said i have no idea what Peter means by this. This is the strangest part of the Bible to me. And I think 2 Peter has many (laughs) equally strange passages in this. This is one of them. Now some people think that um, uh, Peter has a couple different groups of angels in mind here. So first, some think that maybe he's referring to the fallen angels that he just talked about last week. These bold and false teachers aren't even afraid to slander demonic forces. And maybe that lines up. After all, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that Christ will return in judgment. And and so maybe they're like the Sadducees of their day that don't even believe that angels are real. And so they don't think demons are real either. And so they're so skeptical about all spiritual things that they just can say whatever obnoxious thing they want. Now, so so some people think that maybe Peter's referring to fallen angels, but others yet believe that he's talking about faithful angels, the ones that maybe he's referring to in the next verse, in verse 11, those who are great in might and power, the Scriptures say. But these angels are different from human beings in the sense that they realize to slander or to speak any sort of ill or to pronounce a word of judgment against anyone, any human being made in God's image, even these false teachers, is way out of line. And so even the angels don't speak false words or angry or harsh words even to the worst human being because that's not their role to be judges and arbiters of humanity. They leave that up to the Lord. Maybe we human beings could learn something from the angels and not being the judge or arbiter or speaking ill of anybody when we don't know the full situation, or even if we do know the full situation, it's not always up to us to speak a bad word about everybody we encounter. Maybe something we could learn. But the point of all of this is that these people are so out of control, these false teachers are so deranged that they will slander anyone that gets in their way, even if it's dangerous. That's why Peter compares them in verse 12 to irrational animals. They no longer present themselves as human beings, what God made them to be. They are creatures of instinct. They just seem born to be caught and destroyed. Stark, raving, mad, lunatic beasts. These false teachers think that they are so clever, but here they are slandering Angels or demons, whatever they're doing, they're slandering beings that are so insanely powerful that could wipe them out, that could torment and haunt them and destroy them for the rest of their days. It goes to show that these false teachers lack any sense or rationality, rationality, and tragically, their fate will be no different from the pigs and the dogs that we read about at the end of this chapter both destined either for slaughter or for extinction. See, friends, here's the reality of this. This is why Peter takes this so seriously. Because the danger of listening to a false teacher or becoming one, the danger of living your life into a lie for power or pleasure or whatever is that ultimately it will chip away at your humanity. It will strip you of what God made you to be His image bearer until you're no different, really, functionally, than a chimpanzee that sees another chimpanzee holding a banana at once. And they rip each other to shreds. I don't know. I, monkeys and apes are terrifying to me because they seem so silly of creatures. But you watch these nature documentaries and they form tribes. They form... Clicks, it's like a Shakespeare couldn't come up with such a, a brilliant sort of tragic backstory. I watched a documentary about a chimpanzees that that turned for some reason on one of their own, and one of them fashioned uh, like a shiv out of a stick to stab one. I mean, it is brutal. And yet, what this reminds us of is that by giving into false teaching, by believing lies, by pursuing our own sin and selfishness, we become just like that, spiritually speaking. Totally disconnected from God and one another. And that is a a, a true danger, that we can become like irrational animals, acting out on our basis of instincts. Now over the last year, I have been reading... I mentioned C.S. Lewis at the beginning. I've been rereading his Chronicles of Narnia series, something I read a long time ago, um, but have been rereading for the first time. And I've been supplementing it with some secondary literature that points out some of the spiritual things that Lewis gets at in these books. And and they're really interesting. And parents, I've got to say, if you have not read these books to your kids, I think you're really missing out. Especially maybe around Christmas and Advent time, Uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a perfect story. Not only because it's fun, but it leads you, I think, to some great conversations you can have about Jesus. But that's beside the point. But right now, I'm in the middle of the the fifth book that's called The Horse and His Boy. And in the story, there is a Narnian horse and a, a human boy who we discover were both enslaved at a young age, and taken into a faraway land that's not their own, and put to just menial labor all their days. But there isn't a chance, when they have a chance encounter it would seem, for them to escape their harsh masters, and to ride out of this terrible area, and head north home to Narnia. All of their lives they have been treated like dumb beasts, But in reality, they're exceptional creatures, especially this horse, whose name is Bree, who can talk and think and speak like a human being. And so on their way to to Narnia, their paths cross with another pair of runaways, uh, another little human girl who is the daughter of an evil lord, and another captured Narnian horse who can also speak. And to the surprise of the children, it's the horses that do all the planning, the horses that have all the wisdom, the horses that have all the sense. And the humans are not used to this, and they take offense at it. And so at one point, this little girl says, why do you keep talking to my horse instead of me? Implying, I'm the human being, talk to me. And the horse replies, he says, excuse me, Tarkina. but that's Calarmin talk. We're free Narnians, Quinn and I. And I suppose if you're running away to Narnia with us, you want to be one too. In that case, when isn't your horse any longer. One might just as well say that you're her human. And I think the clever point that Lewis is making is this. What gives us dignity as human beings is not our ideas about ourselves. It's not any ideas we get from our culture. Nothing about our country or our class or our culture. Instead, what gives us dignity and belongingness in God is that we have not what we make of ourselves or what others make of us, but what God has made of us Himself. In other words, it's not by anything we ascribe to ourselves, but it's by the creation and redemption of us through the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that each human being has dignity and worth and value. By contrast, these false teachers love and worship only themselves and they become like a rational beast to that end. Unable to save themselves. And tragically, they Do not and cannot. In fact, Peter goes on to say in verse 13 that they will be paid back with harm for the harm that they've been dealing out to others. Why? Because they've become like violent animals. Now verse 13b and 14 are not kind to these people. Peter lists out exactly what they're doing, what their behavior looks like. He says they consider it pleasurable to carouse. That means getting intoxicated in any manner and doing something so shocking as having their way with other people. All out in broad daylight, Peter mentions. And the open, in other words, where anyone can see. They're so shameless that mo- when most people do all their, their violence and crime, they do it at night so it's hidden and they don't get caught. These people do it in broad daylight. And here's the really shocking thing about it is that they are proud of that. They're proud of their spots and blemishes, Peter says, on the worship and the witness of the church. They're proud to do all these things and then come into a church service and sit there all cocky as can be. They're proud to spend their days out in the open deceiving and abusing the same people that they have church fellowship with. Their appetite for destruction is insatiable. But again, to quote Shakespeare, their violent delights have violent ends. See, Peter writes that they have eyes that are full of adultery, that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. In other words, what he's saying here is he means that every person to the false teacher... Their eyes are are filled with looking at people, looking for potential victims of their fornication or adultery. That's how they see people as candidates for their depravity. Not people to be loved, not people to be treasured, not people to be served in the name of Christ, but people to be exploited and manipulated and abused and so on for their own sick pleasure. The word seduce here in the Greek has the same root and meaning as setting out a bait. In other words, they literally hunt vulnerable people like wild predators. Their hearts are always looking for opportunities to sin. They're always stalking people like some hapless prey. So it is any wonder that Peter condemns these people as a brood under a curse, like a bunch of baby vipers destined for the fire. Verse 15 summarizes, they have gone astray by abandoning the straight and narrow path, the path of following Jesus, to take up their cross daily and to be the least in the here and the now so they can be great in heaven. So they abandoned that path. They've been led astray from that path of of really following Jesus, even though that's who they say they follow. But the question we might ask is, what path did they end up taking instead? Now Peter, ever the lover of strange Old Testament stories, takes us back to the book of Numbers and shows us another path, not the path of Jesus, the Son of God, but the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor. The story goes like this, if you don't remember. When the Israelites had escaped Egyptian slavery, and were in the wilderness, and had just infuriated God to no end at this point with their complaining, and he had them chasing their tails for a while in the wilderness, but they were getting ever closer to their destiny, to their promised land. Well, in order to get to the promised land, they had to go up and to the north and through a kingdom called Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And the king of Moab heard that they were coming. And he had heard what God had done to the Egyptians, how God had defeated all of their gods, how he had destroyed their land and their economy. And this king was was shaking in his boots, rightfully so. And so what he decided to do was to ask a powerful and evil witch doctor to curse Israel. And so he goes looking for this man named Balaam to put a curse on them. But Balaam initially ignored this king because he had heard also of the power of Yahweh and knew that he would be up against something challenging. But when the king of Moab offered enough money, an obscene amount of wealth, well, suddenly Balaam's mind was amenable. And so here he is, just like the false teachers. When enough money is on the table, when he can get rich enough by hurting other people, he'll he'll play ball. So Balaam saddles his pack mule And he heads up to a mountaintop where he can overlook Israel and put a hex on them, to put a curse on them. But the strangest thing happens along the way. He's on his path, on his pack mule, and that pack mule discovers an angel in their path blocking the way. Now the donkey, who is an irrational animal, and a a kind of comically irrational one, really, nobody looks at a donkey and says, well, there's a stately beast. No, they're silly. They bray, they snort, they, they look like an off-brand Kmart version of a horse. And so there, there's nothing really stately about this animal, but yet it sees this angel. It gets scared and he diverts. This donkey has enough wisdom to know if I collide with that thing, One of us is not coming out alive, and it's probably not going to be me. But Balaam, who is blinded by his greed and his sin, this supposedly great prophet, can't see this holy servant of God. And so, as the donkey's trying to turn off to the the left or the right, he starts whipping the donkey to get it to go on the road. And then the really strangest part of the story happens. The mule turns its head and preaches to the false preacher. This beast of burden had just saved this evil prophet from annihilation. And he proved once and for all it's never the preacher that does the saving with his preaching, but the one whom he preaches that does the saving. It's never the preacher that does the saving, but the one whom he preaches who does see whether it's me or a donkey or any number of ill-qualified mouthpieces of god god will get his message of truth and grace and love out to the people to hear he'll make sure that it comes out even if a donkey has to say it and so the point of the story in numbers and in here is that God will even use dumb animals to preach truth. Even donkeys, in the end, will sing doxologies. And eventually, prophets, who are greedy and false and lustful, will be muzzled from their madness. They're the ones that will end up shutting up, so to speak. And Balaam, the son of the flesh, A worker of wickedness, as Peter writes. One who was greedy for money. One who tried to seduce Israel with pagan women. One who tried to put a curse on God's people but could only end up speaking blessings. And one who eventually, for his stubbornness and wickedness and sinfulness, was killed violently in battle. That is the path of the false teacher. It may look like you get a little paycheck, a little advantage in the here and the now, but you end up going on to your destruction, not your salvation. And so as we've reached the end of this passage, I guess the question we need to ask is, what are we supposed to make all of this? this Peter puts a lot of strange details together. Well, first, I think we're, we need to know as Christians that God will deal justly with false teachers who preach a message of sin and selfishness so we look out at the people in, that go on tv sometimes and lie in jesus name and have a hundred and you know 100 million dollar estate to their name through people god will deal with those people in the end the ones who say oh yeah follow jesus but you can live how you want sleep with who you want Do what you want. Take as much money as you want. Those people will meet their destruction in the end. You can be rest assured of that, Christian. Don't be seduced by that stuff. It will lead to your destruction. So that's one thing we need to learn. But second, and more importantly, is that God cares deeply for those who are preyed upon by the lies and abuse of these false teachers. God cares for His church which is why he doesn't want them to be taken advantage of by these people, to not be blinded by their sin, but to be open-eyed to his grace. I mentioned earlier how I've been reading Lewis's A Horse and His Boy. And towards the end of that story, after the horses and their humans have gone through dangers, toils, and snares, Aslan, the lion, the great protagonist of this whole series, the creator and redeemer of Narnia, reveals himself to them. And while it seemed that they were completely on their own, being led down all sorts of terrifying paths, facing danger around every bend, they discover that it was Aslan's hidden but holy guidance that accompanied them all the way to their destination. And Aslan says to this boy, who thought he was utterly alone in this world sometimes. He says, I was the lion who forced you to join with the others. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength for the last mile so that you should reach the king in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed your boat in which you lay as a child near death so it came to a shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight, ready to receive. Him. And so, Christian, hear this. This is what Peter would have you know this morning. When we have lost our humanity due to our own deceptions and greeds and lust and power and sin, when all we, like sheep, Isaiah says, had gone astray, becoming just like irrational animals ourselves, our Lord became a Lamb to live amongst us. He was the Lamb who guided us to one another as a congregation. He was the Lamb who comforted us at the graves of our loved ones. The Lamb who drove away our spiritual enemies that haunted us while we slept. The Lamb who gives us a new strength for these last miles on our journey so that we may reach God's kingdom just in the nick of time. And best of all, we read in the Scriptures, He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So that by believing in Him, we might have life in His name. The precious name of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, protect us from the deception and destruction of false teachers, and instead let us trust and obey only in Jesus, the great shepherd of us sheep, and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For it's in His name alone we now ask it. Amen.